Some of the stories may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Worth Repeating Podcast. I'm Tori Poole. This is the second part of the live storytelling event recorded at the Irma and Emilio Nicolás Media Center at Texas Public Radio in downtown San Antonio. The theme was taught. Stories about life's little glorious lessons we haven't quite forgotten. What's a lesson that stuck with you? Our first storyteller is Tally Jorn. Tally shares a story about a long walk with her mom she'll never forget. The last time I saw my mother was September 10th, 2017. It was three days before she unexpectedly died, and we were going to go for a walk, which was weird for us. We, we never went on walks. You see, my mom was a lifelong marathon runner, so she started every day with a run, always, no exceptions. And if we were going to see each other, that meant we were going to be running. But the week before that day, my mom had seen the latest doctor in a string of doctors who agreed with all the previous doctors that if my mom wanted to continue to walk for the rest of her life, that she needed to stop running. And my mom was pissed. She like was really not happy about not being able to run anymore. And so that day when I saw her, she said, Tally, if we are not going to be running, we're going to be walking for a long fucking time. <laughs> and I mean, if it's not already apparent, my mom uh, had a really tough exterior. She um, was hardworking and driven, and she was raised with a lot of adversities in her life. And so she learned to embrace the tools that she was given, but sympathy was not one of them. And, you know, actually when I was a kid and I would come to her with like the little injustices that kids always seem to have, um, she, she would always say, Tally, are you looking for sympathy? And she said, you, you know where you can find it, right? And the answer was always in the dictionary between, <laughs> between shit and syphilis. So, so which, what she, while she didn't have, she, did, she, she didn't have sympathy for any of us. She, what she had was really high expectations and she, and that included her too, right? She didn't have any sympathy for herself. So again, that day, if we were not going to be running, we were going to be walking for a long fucking time. And I don't think she meant to get us lost, but we ended up walking for three and a half hours around downtown Houston, which I mean, I don't think anybody wants to work on downtown Houston for three and a half hours. But, you know, it was really weird because we we had when we started out on this walk, it was on a trail that we had walked on or we'd run on dozens of times. Right. It was really close to my grandmother's house. So every time we visited my grandmother, we went for a run on the same trail. And I don't know if it was the walking instead of running that threw us for a loop or the the fact that both of us are really god awful with direction. I still am a really terrible. I got lost in this building. Like we get we I'm really bad at direction. And so we got we got lost and both of us didn't have our phones on us. We had forgotten them at the house. So 
we got to talk for a really long time. You know, I, my mom was kind of the person that's always was always on the move, really quickly on the move, and um, that we were really forced to slow down that day. And you know, when you spend a lot of time slowly walking next to someone, they can they open up and they start to talk. And my mom didn't have a problem with talking as it was, so she talked for a long time, and naturally the conversation flowed into her work. Her work was a really, was low hanging fruit talking about work. It was a really big part of her life. Um, you see, she, when she moved to the Rio Grande Valley in the early 1990s, she started her own architecture firm. It was called Megamorphosis Design, which was a play on her name, Meg, and then Mega, big, and then metamorphosis, right? The word meaning a total and complete change. And so as a founder of a company, her work was, a, a again, a really big part of her identity and her life. So it was pretty frequent that we would talk about her work. But that day was kind of different. Like, for some reason, she just started kind of reflecting on it. And she started telling me that when she ultimately retired one day and left the Rio Grande Valley, she was like, she felt like she could be proud because... She felt like she had made a positive impact on her community. And she's like, I think I'll be leaving the Valley for the better. And she explained that it was because in her mind that she the, these buildings that she had designed and these art installations she had commissioned and um, these the wellness coalition she founded were all like tangible examples of making the community a better place and in her mind, right? So she, as she was sharing that, we were, again, walking around this really busy part of Houston. And there were other people that were walking. And then there were also some runners. And I think my mom was like longing. I want to think longingly looking at the runners. It, it could have been like a, je a jealous rage. I, it, the jury is still out. I don't know. But she was like looking around us. And there was this woman that was visibly lost. She was looking at her phone and like looking at the buildings around us and clearly like she didn't know where she was. And my, again, we were lost, but my mom decides that it's like her moment to spring into action. And she's like, well, where are you, where are you trying to go? And my mom was one bad with directions again to really bad with technology, but she like starts like trying to like help this woman. She's clearly making the situation worse. And this woman also did not ask us for help, but my mom <laughs> is trying to help. And as, as she's trying to help, Another woman who is running starts come running towards us and she's focused. She's again running. And my mom leaps in front of this woman that I guess she perceives to be a Houston native. And she's like, hey, are you from here? And the woman clearly jostled and caught off guard has to take her headphones out. And she's like, what? And my mom is like, are you from here? And the woman's like, well, I mean, I've lived here for 15 years. And my mom's like, she's lost. <laughs> Can you help her? And the woman, like, I mean, she was again caught off guard, but she kind of reluctantly agrees. And she's like, I mean, okay. So my mom's like, great. And just takes off and starts walking again. And I have to like kind of run to catch up with her a little bit or jog to catch up. And 
And then we we continued on our way and we were lost for at least another hour after that. We missed the doctor's appointment for my grandmother, the whole reason we were in town. But we I've had a lot of time to think about that walk since then and kind of what it was really all about. And, you know, my mom seemed to really believe that her impact in the community that she was would one day leave was a result of these buildings and the, I mean, her vision for the, for change. But I, I don't really think that that's all that it was. I think that her vision for us, right, the expectations she had for all of us that we could be the vehicles for change, um, that we can ultimately be a megamorphosis ourselves is really what it was all about. So thank you. <laughs> Megamorphosis never sounded so possible. Thank you, Meg. Know someone with a great story? Tell them about Worth Repeating. Worth Repeating is now accepting submissions for the live event in March on the topic, Savor. Restaurateurs, chefs, and more are encouraged to submit their best kitchen stories and the stories behind the dishes that last. Savor is truly going to be a delectable evening, so submit today by visiting tpr.org backslash WR. This program was made possible with support from the 8020 Foundation, striving to transform San Antonio by issuing grants to public charities that attract, grow, and retain San Antonio's future workforce. For this and more information, visit 8020foundation.com. Our next storyteller is Aya Hamza. Aya shares a story about a night she considered becoming an artist. At the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement, I was in Fort Worth, and I was helping the Southside community paint a mural of Breonna Taylor. There was a group of guys that were there, and they were airbrushing details on the mural. And one of them turned to me and asked if I had ever airbrushed before. I said I hadn't, and he asked me if I'd like to try. So I said yes, and I gave it a go. While I was airbrushing, he asked me if I'd ever tattooed before. I said no, I hadn't. And he asked me if I'd like to learn. Now for me, that is an obvious yes. I love learning random ass skills. Some people like to bring desserts and sides to a party. I wanna bring a needle and permanently alter your body. So we exchange numbers and he tells me to come to his studio after his last client. I get home, I get a text around 11 p.m. and he tells me that he's done and to head on over. So I tell my roommate where I'm going, put in the address, and I head out. While I'm driving, I realize that I'm getting deeper and deeper into a residential area. Things are getting darker and darker. The street lamps are disappearing. The houses are looking abandoned and dilapidated. It's just definitely nowhere that I'd open a business. <laughs> and so at this point, Anyone with like an average sense of survival skills would <laughs> probably turn the car around and go home. But I'm not your average person. <laughs> and my gut feeling has been heavily influenced by growing up in the safety of a small town. So I kept going. And I find myself parking in front of this house. It's kind of worn down. 
vinyl siding, just this one eerie porch light. It's just not exactly where I thought I'd be. So I texted my roommate just to be safe. And I was like, hey, this is the situation. I'm going to share my location with you. Now, the problem with this is, what, well, there's a lot of problems with this situation. <laughs> but the problem here is that my roommate at the time was equally as delusional, if not more. So she just shoots me back a text saying like, okay, cool, have fun. <laughs> Call me if you need help. As if a serial killer would let me be like, hey, could you just hold off on slitting my throat for like five minutes? I just need to make a quick phone call. Anyway, I go in and to be fair, in my defense, I'm 29 now and this happened way back when I was like 26. So I walk in and I realize I'm stepping into a one bedroom home turned tattoo studio. And so his bed is over here on the right side. He's got a TV right there. Across on that wall, there's like a massage slash tattoo table situation. And then behind it is a massive mural of Jesus <laughs> engraved in wood. And ironically, that did not make me feel any safer. In front of that table, there was a metal surgical table, and on it were a bunch of sharp tools and a big slab of fake skin. <laughs> For those of you who are unfamiliar with fake skin, or what you and Jesus probably hope is fake skin, it usually looks like a four by four slab. It kind of this like rubbery, thick material. The top layer's thinner, flesh colored, supposed to be the skin. And then the bottom layer is thicker, red, and supposed to be what's under the skin, so essentially blood. And the first thing he teaches me is how to sanitize all the sharp tools and the needles. So we do that. And then he teaches me how to do some line work. And honestly, I was not shabby. <laughs> like, if all of us right now were in prison, <laughs> getting makeshift tattoos of apple outlines, I would be in your top three for sure. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, I'm doing the line work. I'm living out my Miami Ink dreams. I am like not even in the room. I am five to 10 years ahead. I am thinking about apprenticeships, my tattoo side gig, my signature tramp stamps, everything. And then suddenly I hear this sensual Latino music come on. And for those of you that are familiar, it was definitely Bad Bunny. <laughs> and then he lights a joint. And then I see the lights dim. And then my light bulb goes off, finally. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I see what's going on now. Now, some of you probably saw what was going on the minute I got a late night text from a man I didn't know at 11 p.m. telling me to come over. <laughs> but some of us choose to believe that strange men want to teach women they don't know how to tattoo. So I get up and I grab my bag of bad first date excuses and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, it's so late, I really gotta go. Thank you so much for the tattoo lesson. Can't wait for the next one. And uh, as I'm walking out, he grabs my arm and he pulls me toward him and he asks, can I kiss you? Now honestly, super polite for a serial killer. 
<laughs> Imagine if every serial killer asked for consent. I said no. I gave him a few excuses because he was looking real sad bunny at that point. And he let me go. So I left and my tattoo career abruptly ended at that time. And now look at me. I was forced to become a doctor. I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive him, honestly. So if you take one very highly specific lesson away today, I want you to learn this. If a man that you don't know texts you at midnight, tells you that he wants you to come over so he can teach you how to tattoo, maybe don't go. Or, or you do go, and then you get to tell your story publicly on the radio. <laughs> or Dateline. Sometimes all it takes is one boy to spoil a dream. For me, it was the fake skin. This program was made possible by the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, striving to enrich the quality of life of San Antonio residents and visitors by creating art programming and helping people experience art. For this and more information, visit GetCreativeSanAntonio.com. Our last storyteller of the night is Rita Chaberneau. Rita shares a story about boys, the country, and idle time. I'm going to take everybody back to 1971. I encountered a young man who happened to be the son of our small town mayor who was in, it, it just could not wait to share some knowledge he had been taught with my brother and my cousin. I was born and raised in a very small town in East Texas. My mother was born and raised in the same town. She actually went to school with the man who was our mayor, his wife, our high school principal, and our superintendent. So very small town. Our mother liked to have a man in her life. She married young and divorced. And on a trip to San Antonio in 1968 to Hemisphere, we were looking at pictures, and I see one with my mom and some man I didn't know. I flip it over, and it said, teen and her fiancé. So I went to our relatives whose house we were at, and I asked her who that was with my mama. She just nonchalantly looked at the picture and said, Oh, that's Teen and her first husband, Jelly Bean. <laughs> Jelly Bean was not my daddy. <laughs> my dad died October 31st of 1966. Well, by 1970, she was working on her third husband. After a two-week sabbatical, I guess you could call it, she came back home where my older sister, myself, my brother, and a one-year-old sister were home alone taking care of ourselves and informed us that she had married Marvin. <laughs> Marvin was now my third stepdad. Well, my older sister had no intention of moving back to Tenahaw. At that time, we were living in Nacogdoches because our mom was going to college there. So my older sister packed herself up, got married, and moved to California. The rest of us that were there packed up our stuff and started our next adventure back in Tenny Hall. Marvin's place was on a few acres of land outside of town. He had this huge chicken house. 
he had some pigs, some cows, and this big horse that was way too big for my little brother to ride. He was seven at the time. So the boys, I had a cousin that was four years old, and as the oldest person at, at home, you are responsible for your siblings. You're responsible for all your cousins and any other children who happened to be at the house at that time. <laughs> well, my brother and my little cousin loved exploring that land. On July 4th of that year, remember, this is a different time. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. On July 4th, popping fireworks alone. They ran out of fireworks and started throwing matches. This small town I'm from is in the piney woods of East Texas. And if you've ever been around pine trees, you know what happens when those leaves start falling. There's this straw everywhere. Well, after a night of state, of call, first I had to call the Tenahaw Volunteer Fire Department. I spent the night up with my stepdad, Marvin, watching for flare-ups. I knew I had to keep an eye on those two boys because they were up to no good. So maybe to keep my brother from getting in trouble, shortly after the fire, my stepdad brings a surprise home for Butch. And I want to say something about my stepdad real quick. Marvin was a very nice man, and eventually he is the dad of my youngest brother who comes along after this story's over. But when he drank hard liquor, he became an abusive asshole. He beat my mom. He beat me. He tried to cut our mother's heart out one time. So this is what we were growing up in. But back to the surprise. Here he comes. He has this horse trailer. Here he comes pulling out of the trailer this tiny black beautiful little Shetland pony that my brother named Dinky. Dinky was wild. Marvin said, all you kids got to do is ride her and she'll eventually calm down. So we <laughs> rode her. My brother ended up having to go to the emergency room to get stitches because Dinky ran him into the barbed wire fence. Dinky threw everybody that got on her. When I stood over Dinky, my feet would touch the ground because she was that small. She was tiny. That dog, that dog, that horse never calmed down. So late one afternoon in August, I realized I hadn't seen those two boys for a while. So I go out to check on them. And I go back in the pasture, and in a distance, I see them out in the horse pen. So I go walking out, and I hear a voice of an older boy. And so I'm listening, not knowing what's going on. I decide to sneak around the back and see what they're doing. I go around to the back of the horse pen, climb over the fence, go walking up to this trio, and I'm just standing there and here on an overturned old rusty wash tub is my seven-year-old brother, hysterically crying, my four-year-old little freckle-faced redhead cousin, his pants and underwear around his ankles, and the mayor's son, the spoiled little rich kid, is teaching my brother and my cousin how to fuck a horse. It, did you expect that, did you? So, and y'all remember, this is 1971, a small town in East Texas. So it takes me a minute to even realize What's going on? Because Dinky, the wild horse, is just standing there in front of these two little boys. Dinky, my brother named her Dinky. 
I guess Naylor, which is the boy's name, kind of ironic, his name is Naylor. Naylor, I guess he sees like crazy in my eyes. He takes off running through the pasture, running towards town, probably to get his dad, the mayor, and leaves me with these two hysterical little boys that I'm not really even sure what to do. And as I think back about this story, we really didn't talk about it. No one talked about it. You know, nowadays you'd be calling Child Protective Services and somebody would be in jail, I'm sure. Years passed, and in the spring of 1993, our brother Butch was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer. By February of 94, he was gone. At his funeral, family, friends, ah, those guys, God, they're irritating. Uh. Everybody gathers, and tradition in our family, after a funeral, you go to the relative's house and everybody drinks and we share stories. Well, here's this group of people walking up towards me. There are these three women, and there's this super tall young man, freckle-faced, red hair. It's that little four-year-old boy in 1971. And so they come up, and we all hug and talked about how much we enjoyed growing up together in that small town and what fun we had had. And I looked at Lloyd, and he's doing this. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And I said to him, I said, Lloyd, you know I have to tell the story. (laughs) Thank you. This particular method of horse training is not recommended. This program was made possible by Niche at Pearl. More than clothing, Niche at Pearl features jewelry, accessories, and crafting events. For this and more information, visit nicheatpearl.com. That's it for the Worth Repeating podcast. Do us a favor and like, subscribe, or review us wherever you stream podcasts. Worth Repeating returns February 13th, and the theme is Reset. From second chances to starting over, these stories are all about restoration. Begin again with us by grabbing tickets today and visiting tpr.org backslash WR. Support for Worth Repeating comes from the 8020 Foundation, the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, and Niche at Pearl. Worth Repeating is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Tori Poole. Thanks for listening.